Today, we're focusing on part one of the Psalms of the Bible. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. Today we've got another episode in our series called Storylines. It's about people, places, and things that show up repeatedly in the Bible and that have special significance or meaning. Did you know that there are more than 400 references to singing in the Bible? In addition, there are over 50 commands or encouragements for Christians to sing, either to God or to one another. Did you also know that there are more than 185 songs in the Bible? Okay, I know 150 of them are in just one book, the book of Psalms. Psalms is one of the Bible's three songbooks. The other two are Song of Songs, which is an epic love song between a bride and a groom, and Lamentations, which has a set of five dirges, all mourning the destruction of Jerusalem. And on top of these, there are still another 35 or so songs scattered throughout the Old and New Testaments. When I was preparing for this podcast, I discovered some interesting things about the songs of the Bible. And I want to share one of them with you as we get started. I discovered that the first song in the Bible, recorded in the book of Exodus, is very similar in content with the last song in the Bible. The last song is in the book of Revelation. There is a Bible thread here connecting these two songs that was thousands of years in the making. I find that interesting. We'll talk more about that thread later. Before we can talk about the actual songs of the Bible, we need to understand the poetry of these songs. Do you realize that one-third of the Old Testament is written in poetry? as compared to the prose or narrative style of writing? Just think about that. As I mentioned, the Old Testament includes the 150 Psalms that are all poetry. But there are other poetic books as well. Job, Proverbs, and I already mentioned Song of Songs and Lamentations. And then we discover that all but two of the prophetic books of the Old Testament contain poetry. We can start to understand this large percentage of poetry found in the Old Testament. Old Testament Hebrew poetry is very different from English poetry. Actually, I don't think they have anything in common. The English poetry that we are most familiar with is similar to Greek and Latin poetry. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise because the English language has deep roots in both the Greek and Latin languages. Hebrew poetry, on the other hand, has much in common with Middle Eastern Canaanite poetry. And that shouldn't be surprising either, since God's people inherited the land of Canaan, i.e. the promised land, following the days of Moses. Here's a key difference between Hebrew and Greek poetry. Old Testament Hebrew poetry is highly structured and thought-based, with the repeating of a single idea in 
similar, yet different ways. This is called parallelism. Let me explain. Here's an example from Psalm 22. It's a prophecy about Good Friday, when the enemies of Jesus would taunt him at his crucifixion. Here's the first line. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. And here's the second line. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. The second line repeats the same thought as the first line, but with different words. When the same thought is expressed in both lines, this is called a synonymous structure. And in this example, there is another structure also used. The thoughts of the first line are reversed in the second line. So let me read it again. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Second line. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. This is known as a chiasmus. You'll find this literary structure frequently used in Old Testament poetry. And there are other variations of the parallelism in Hebrew poetry. There is an antithetical structure, which simply means that the lines express opposite thoughts, either by contrast or stating both the positive and the negative. Another poetic structure is synthetic. That's where the second or third lines develop the thought of the first line. And let me tell you, there are even more poetic structures used in the Bible. One of the more interesting structures is that of an acrostic. An acrostic is a play on the alphabet. The most elaborate example of this is Psalm 119. This is the longest psalm comprised of 22 sections of eight verses each. The first section is titled with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. But there's more. Each of the eight verses in this first section all begin with a Hebrew word that starts with the letter Aleph. The second section is, you guessed it, titled with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Baith. And all of the first words in all eight verses also begin with the letter Baith. This pattern is repeated through the entire Hebrew alphabet. <laughs> As I said before, Hebrew poetry is both highly structured and thought-based. Greek poetry, on the other hand, doesn't use parallelism. New Testament Greek poetry has descriptive and often vivid language that creates an emotional reaction and response. The words used in New Testament poetry were chosen for their sound and their meaning. Here's an example from 1 Timothy 3. It's a song, likely part of a hymn sung in the early church. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. It's a song that covers the life of God's Son, Jesus. You know, there's nowhere near the amount of poetry in the New Testament when compared to the Old. But when it does show up, it communicates something special. One other point worth noting about poetry in either the Old or New Testaments, Hebrew and Greek poetry don't rhyme like we sometimes have in English poetry. Well, with that brief intro about poetry, are we ready to get to our first song? 
I am. Our first song is found in Exodus chapter 15. It was sung in response to one of the greatest miracles that God performed in the Old Testament, the parting of the Red Sea. So let's back up a bit and recall the events that prompted the singing of this song. In the weeks prior to this miracle, God had instructed Moses and his older brother Aaron to go to Pharaoh and ask that the Israelites be allowed to go out into the desert to worship their God, to worship Yahweh, the Lord. Pharaoh refused, which resulted in the Lord starting to send ten plagues upon the Egyptian people with each plague worse than the prior one. The tenth plague was the death of the firstborn of both men and animals in every household. Upon hearing and seeing this for himself, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night and told them, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds and go. The Egyptian people urged the Israelite people to hurry and leave their country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the Israelites left. Guess what? Pharaoh changed his mind when he realized his free source of labor was exiting the country. So he assembled his army of soldiers, horses, and chariots, and went in hot pursuit of the Israelites. Now, this is significant. When the Lord led the Israelites out of Egypt, he didn't lead them along the fastest, most direct route out of the country. Instead, believe this or not, the Lord led them to place where they could be easily cornered by the Egyptian army. Their backs would literally be up against a wall, namely a large body of water. The Lord did this intentionally so he could demonstrate his almighty power to the Israelites and in the process defeat Pharaoh and his army. When the Egyptian army approached the Israelite camp, the Lord parted the waters of the Red Sea behind them with a wall of water on each side. Then he caused a mighty wind to dry out the land. This allowed the Israelites to walk on the sea floor to the other side. When the Egyptian army entered into the sea floor pursuing the Israelites, the Lord released the walls of water to cover the Egyptian army. Not one Egyptian survived. What an incredible miracle. With the Israelite people safely on the eastern side of the Red Sea, Moses led the singing of the Bible's first recorded song. The song is fairly long. It focused on the Lord's mighty miracle and the impact it had on both his people and the Lord's enemies. Since I don't know the musical tune Moses used, I'm just going to read it to you. And as I do, listen for the parallelism of the Hebrew poetry. Here we go. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. 
Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. Well, that was Moses leading the men of Israel in song. But we also hear about Miriam, Moses and Aaron's sister. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her. With timbrels and dancing, Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Song of Moses and Miriam, also known as the Song of the Sea, was a festive victory song that gave glory to the Lord for saving his people. Jewish tradition also refers to the lyrics of this song as a ketubah, a marriage contract or covenant between Yahweh and the Jewish people, a covenant that would be sealed weeks later at Mount Sinai. Jewish tradition also reveals that this song was sung in Jewish communities on the seventh day of the festival of Passover. It was sung every year as a reminder of the greatness of the Lord. The next recorded song in the Old Testament wouldn't be sung for nearly 40 years. So, what happened during those four decades? Well, from the shores of the Red Sea, the Israelites traveled to Mount Sinai, where God made his covenant with his people. He gave to Moses the Ten Commandments and all the other moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. All of these laws were to govern God's special people. From Mount Sinai, the Israelites traveled north to Kadesh, located in the desert of Paran, just south of the land of Canaan. Canaan was the land the Lord had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants. The Lord came to Moses and told him to send some men to explore the land and bring back a report. 
12 men were chosen, one from each of the 12 tribes. When the explorers returned, they failed to bring a consensus report. In fact, only two of the 12, Caleb and Joshua, gave a positive report saying that they should take possession of the land because the Lord could provide success. The other 10 explorers went through the camp creating fear by telling the people how strong the tribes of Canaan were. This resulted in rebellion against Moses. The people wanted to kill him. The Lord was not happy with these people. He told Moses he was ready to destroy the nation of Israel and start over. But Moses interceded for the people, and the Lord forgave them. But the Lord also said this, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness but who disobeyed me and tested me, get this, ten times. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. Eighteen to twenty-four months earlier, the Israelites had witnessed the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. Now they were doubting that the Lord could give them the land of Canaan. As a result, the Israelites would wander in the deserts of the Sinai Peninsula for about the next 40 years. Near the end of those 40 years, as the Israelites were camped south of the Dead Sea, the plan was to go around the eastern shore of the Dead Sea northward toward the Jordan River. They stopped at a place called Beer. Now, in Hebrew, Beer isn't referring to Miller, Coors, or Budweiser. In Hebrew, beer means well of water. Arriving at beer meant the Israelites could refill their water supply for the final leg of their journey to the promised land. It was a pretty happy occasion, even exciting, knowing that the years in the desert were nearly over. The Lord told Moses, Gather the people together and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song. Spring up, O well, sing to it, the well which the leaders sank, which the nobles of the people dug, with the scepter and with their staffs. This is a short song, only four lines long. Before we get to the significance of this song, we should review the challenges of having sufficient drinking water that the Israelites faced over the previous 40 years. For example, it was just three days after the miracle at the Red Sea that the Israelites faced a water issue at a place called Mara. There was water, but it was bitter and unfit to drink. So the Lord simply showed Moses a piece of wood, which he tossed into the water, and the water became sweet and good for drinking. As the Israelites were traveling to Mount Sinai, they again faced a water shortage. The Lord told Moses to go to the rock of Horeb, another name for Sinai, and strike it with the staff that he had used in Egypt to turn the Nile River into blood. From this rock, God provided water for the entire time the Israelites were camped at Mount Sinai. There are other references to the Lord providing water. We know the Israelites stayed in Elam for some time, where there were 12 springs of water. 
When they were camped at Kadesh, the Lord told Moses to speak to a rock uh, to get water. Instead, Moses struck the rock with his staff twice. Water did come gushing out, but Moses' disobedience cost him ever setting foot in the promised land. The Bible's historical record shows that despite the Israelites complaining they never had water, the Lord always provided it. Back to the song. The song indicated that in this case to get water, it was not Moses striking a rock or speaking to a rock, but rather that the leaders of Israel, the nobles, dug into the ground with their staffs, and water came forth. Spring up, O well, sing to it. The well which the leaders sank, which the nobles of the people dug, with the scepter and with their staffs. Let's finish up today with a song that Moses wrote down shortly before the Israelites crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land. It is called the Song of Moses and is found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. It is a long song, so I encourage you to read it sometime for yourself. But at least let me share with you the outline of the song and the main theme. Moses characterized uh, began this with an invocation to the Lord, identifying him with these words. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without justice, righteous and upright is he. The Lord is called the rock. Moses then characterized the Israelites as a rebellious people. He provided some historical examples of their rebellion, as well as their rejection of the Lord. He went on to describe the consequences of Israel's past rejection of the Lord and predicted future rejection. Then following a brief transition, the song ends with a renewal of the Lord's promise to bless Israel and to defeat her enemies. On the very day that Moses shared this song with the people of Israel, the Lord instructed him to go up Mount Nebo, which was just east of the Jordan River and the city of Jericho. There on that mountain, Moses died. There were three songs recorded in the Bible during the life of Moses. They are powerful songs which tell of the amazing power and love of the Lord, the God of grace. The songs of the Bible are one of the Bible's storylines. If you have any thoughts or questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. And be sure to check out my Bible Threads series called The Grand Ands of the Bible. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for part two of Songs in our, our Bible Threads series entitled Storylines. God bless.